Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Poem Crit 101. As always, I'm Dr. J, your friendly neighborhood intensivist. Today, I want to talk about something a little different. I want to talk about codes in the hospital and how we handle them. It's really important, as you guys all know, that regardless if you are an intensivist, a resident fellow, nurse, nurse practitioner, whoever you are in the hospital, everyone does play a role when it comes to coding a patient. It's important to know how codes are run and how we can... Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Poem Crit 101. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood intensivist, Dr. J. Well, happy 2023, everyone. How, how are you all doing with your resolutions? Anyone broken them yet? I know I used to always make this long list of things I was going to change about myself with each new year, like stop eating sugar, get up earlier, stop watching so much TV. But I would just end up breaking every single resolution, literally just a couple days in. It was so unproductive, and I realized resolutions should probably not be so focused on the negative, but rather on the positive. For example, this year, I'm making a goal to be more healthy instead of saying just stop eating sugar, and I'm going to spend more time on productive activities instead of saying, you know, don't watch so much TV. You get the point. And speaking of spending more time on productive activities, I think we should get started with our first Poem Crit 101 podcast of 2023. So today, we're going to be talking about everyone's favorite topic, alcohol withdrawal. I've gotten multiple requests from people on how to, on how to manage this topic and, and you know how do we handle these patients. Obviously, we've all seen this classic patient in the hospital, and I'll tell you, if you haven't yet, you will. Plus, from a practical standpoint, it's really important to understand this topic because it could mean the difference between a floor admission versus an ICU admission. So let's start with the pathophysiology of alcohol withdrawal, followed by how it presents, and remember, it's on a spectrum. We'll briefly touch on when you should admit these patients to the ICU, and then we'll spend the bulk of the talk on how to manage these patients. All right, let's get right into it. So why do people present with alcohol withdrawal the way they do? What I mean by that is, why do they end up sweaty, tachycardic, hypertensive, etc.? Well, remember that alcohol is a central nervous system depressant. While it enhances inhibitory tone by upregulating GABA, the major inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain, it also inhibits excitatory tone, which is normally induced by glutamate, which is one of the major excitatory amino acids. In patients who are dependent on alcohol, it is actually alcohol that preserves that balance. So if they stop drinking abruptly, this is actually going to result in overactivity of the central nervous system, which manifests as the symptoms that we associate with alcohol withdrawal. Now, studies in the 50s show that patients who drank for longer periods actually developed more severe withdrawal than those who drank for short periods. Some studies have also suggested that genetics may actually play a role in developing more severe withdrawal as well. So let's talk a little bit about how alcohol withdrawal patients present. As I'm sure you're all aware, the presentation depends on how long it's been since their last drink. So don't forget that when you're taking a history, don't just ask how much they drink, but also when their last drink was. Mild withdrawal is going to present in the first 6 to 36 hours after the last drink. These guys are going to be shaky, they may be a little anxious, they may have a headache. They can be sweaty, usually they don't want to eat. They may have a rapid heart rate, and they can even be a little sweaty. 
But the most important point here is that their mentation will be intact. Usually their symptoms are going to resolve in one to two days. Now, withdrawal-related seizures can develop in the first 6 to 48 hours after the last drink. Risk factors for these seizures include patients who are also withdrawing from benzos or other sedative hypnotics at the same time, or if they have low potassium and platelet levels. The risk of seizure also increases as they have repeated withdrawals. So the more withdrawals they have, the risk of seizure increases. This is actually called the kindling effect. When these seizures present, they're going to present like a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. They are usually going to happen once, or if they happen multiple times, it's going to be like a cluster of two or three episodes. Now, there's something called alcohol hallucinosis. That's going to present in the first 12 to 24 hours after the last drink, and that will usually resolve in another one to two days. Risk factors for this include decreased thiamine absorption, and these patients are going to often have visual hallucinations, They'll tell you they see insects or animals in the room, but they can also have auditory or tactile hallucinations as well. Now remember, their vitals are going to be normal and their mentation will also be intact. Now, the big one, withdrawal delirium, or what we more commonly know as delirium tremens or DTs. This is going to present 72 to 96 hours after the last drink. So essentially three days after their last drink, you're going to have to watch out for this. This is where you're going to have altered mentation. You can have hallucinations as well. They'll be agitated and they're going to have extreme autonomic hyperactivity. Fever, tachycardia, hypertension, they will be drenched in sweats. There's also something called severe alcohol withdrawal syndrome. And I just want you guys to be aware of this term because it's an umbrella term. And underneath that comes withdrawal seizures and withdrawal delirium. So if anyone is having withdrawal seizures and or DTs, remember, this is considered severe withdrawal. All right, so that's how these people present. Before we move on to management, I have to briefly touch on CEWA. We all know and love the CEWA scale. Some of us love it a little too much. For those of you who don't know what it is, it stands for the Clinical Institute Withdrawal Assessment Scale for Alcohol. It's actually a 15-point scale, and there's a revised version that came out um, relatively recently, and that's what um, we use most commonly these days. It's a symptom severity scale we use in these patients, and it's meant to help figure out who needs medically supervised withdrawal management. It measures the degree of nausea, vomiting, tremor, sweats, anxiety, agitation, all types of hallucination, headache, and altered mentation. For example, someone who had a drink more than five days ago and has a CEWA of less than eight should not need medically supervised management. Now, CEWA is not meant to diagnose alcohol withdrawal, nor should you use it if you don't know their alcohol history or if the patient can't communicate. Because a lot of the questions rely on you asking the patient Uh, you know, how anxious do you feel? Are you having hallucinations? What do you see? What do you hear? If they can't answer that, you can't appropriately score them. And oftentimes what happens is that these patients get scored falsely high and then they get end up getting over sedated on benzos, which then results in a rapid response, which then often results in an intubation and ICU admission, which may have been preventable. What I want to stress here, guys, is that see what is a great tool but when it's used correctly. 
All right, now that I've done my PSA about the CWIS scale, let's move on to what we're all interested in, management. So before we go into the drugs, I want to make you guys aware of the fact that there are some indications to admit someone straight to the ICU who's in alcohol withdrawal. I mean, of course, you have the typical criteria of, you know, them being hemodynamically unstable or having respiratory failure. But also watch out for those alcoholics who have severe electrolyte derangements, low <clears throat> potassium, FOS, mag, calcium, if they've got a severe acid-base disturbance if they're in severe rhabdo, or if they've had alcohol withdrawal before that's been complicated by seizure. And of course, that patient who's appropriately scoring high on CWA and is needing a lot of benzos or sedation. Um, and then even those patients who are in withdrawal, despite having a high ethanol level in the blood. So all those types of patients are ones that we just want to go ahead and manage in the ICU. So let's start with withdrawal seizures. How do we manage those? So we're going to give things like benzos followed by phenobarbant or probe. Phenytoin is ineffective. This has been proven with studies. And remember, you got to treat these seizures because if you don't, it's going to progress to DTs in at least one third of these patients. Let's talk about benzos. So benzos are the mainstay for management when we talk about alcohol withdrawal. They control the agitation and they help prevent the disease process from progressing. You also want to keep these patients in a quiet environment. You can use physical restraints if you need to, but once they're chemically sedated, please take the restraints off because it can actually worsen rhabdo if they fight those uh, restraints. You have to make sure to hydrate these patients if there's no strong contraindication. Don't forget to give thiamine followed by glucose to help prevent wernickes and also put them on a multivitamin and folate. You're going to replace your electrolytes aggressively. And remember, in the first like 48 hours or so, you should probably give all of this IV because these patients aren't really absorbing anything via their GI tract. However, after that, if they still can't take anything by mouth, you need to find an alternate, excuse me, alternate route of nutrition. Why? Because not only are these guys malnourished, but they have very high metabolic needs to, due to their excited autonomic state. Now, you guys may have heard of something called a banana bag. This is essentially D5 normal saline plus a multivitamin, folate, and thiamine. They call it a banana bag because the fluid actually looks yellow. So lots of people use this, and anecdotally, they'll tell you, you know, it, it improves um, these patient symptoms and it's helpful. In reality, it's actually not been well studied in terms of clinical outcomes. So there's nothing really against using it, but if you can give them regular fluids with PO, multivitamin, folate, thymine, or IV, um, that's just, just as well. I mean, it's all equivalent. Uh, we just don't have proven studies that show that the banana bag is superior. Just something to keep in mind. So let's circle back to benzos. Let's discuss them in a little bit more detail. How do they even help? Well, they stimulate the GABA receptors, which then actually decrease neuronal activity, and then that increases sedation. So there's tons of benzos out there. Which ones do we even use? Most popular ones are going to be diazepam or Valium, lorazepam or Ativan, and chlordiazepoxide or Librium. The best ones, the ones that you really want to reach for, are going to be the longer-acting benzos that have active metabolites. So that's going to be diazepam or chlordiazepoxide. Why are they the best? Because then the patient just ends up having a smoother course, so you've got less chance of withdrawal or seizure. 
Now, if your patient also has advanced cirrhosis or they're dealing with acute alcoholic hepatitis, then you're going to look at lorazepam or oxazepam, also called Cerex. Lorazepam has a shorter half-life and oxazepam doesn't have any active metabolites, so you really shouldn't have any prolonged side effects if too much is given. Now, there's been a lot of talk about whether you should treat these patients only when there are symptoms, called symptom trigger therapy, or should you just schedule the treatment uh, regardless? This is called front-loading therapies. So they did a bunch of studies and they actually found that symptom trigger therapy had superior clinical endpoints, lower total doses of sedatives, and shorter periods of hospitalizations. So essentially what this amounts to is that really only give your patients treatment if they have symptoms. The only time you should really think about employing front-loading therapy is if your patient is going to be at greater risk of developing dangerous complications if they go into severe withdrawal. For example, if you have you know, a really elderly patient who's got a pretty bad cardiac history and then they've gone into DTs, then you'd probably want to consider front-loading therapy. And what that means is giving higher initial doses of that benzo to either prevent or get quicker control of those alcohol withdrawal symptoms. Now, what happens if you've given a ton of benzos and they're still in withdrawal? Well, first, let me define what I mean by a ton of benzos. This would be someone who's gotten more than 50 milligrams of diazepam or 10 milligrams of lorazepam in the first hour of treatment, or they've gotten 200 milligrams of diazepam or 40 milligrams of lorazepam in the first three to four hours of treatment. So people who are still symptomatic despite these humongous doses are in what we call refractory withdrawal. And there are adjunctive agents we can use. A very popular one, and in fact, this is one that we employ where I work, is phenobarb or a barbiturate. And this actually works really well when given with a benzo. How does this happen? It's actually kind of neat. The benzo makes the GABA chloride channel open more often and the phenobarb keeps that same channel open for longer, like a synergistic effect. And actually, some studies have even showed that the combo of lorazepam and phenobarb substantially reduced ICU admissions as compared to giving lorazepam alone. So in this situation, if we're going to use phenobarb, we start with a dose of 130 to 260 milligrams IV every 15 to 20 minutes until your symptoms are controlled. Now, you are going to have some patients who are at higher risk for adverse effects from phenobarb, and these guys should be given lower doses. These are going to be your patients who are elderly, who have a significant cardiac history, COPD, or who are extremely volume depleted. Another point is that you should remember to not go above 15 mg per kg in the first 24 hours. Once your symptoms are well controlled, go ahead and start maintenance dosing that phenobarb. Usually it's going to be 130 to 260 milligrams IV per day, divided among two to three doses. And this is going to continue for three to five days, followed by a taper, just like you would do with a benzo, at a max of 10% reduction per day, and you're going to watch really closely for recurrence of those symptoms. Now, if your patient is intubated, propofol is a great option here. Why? It can open those chloride channels in the absence of GABA, and it can even antagonize the excitatory amino acids upregulated during withdrawal. So we've talked about what we can use. Let's talk about what not to use. 
Some people have talked about giving ethanol to these patients. In fact, ethanol is really difficult to titrate. It has a lot of side effects and studies have shown it's in fact inferior to benzos. We really want to avoid antipsychotics here, especially Haldol. These lower the seizure threshold and can interfere with heat dissipation, which is really important because the people who are in DTs, remember, like we mentioned before, they get fever, they get very diaphoretic, so that would be problematic. Now, antipsychotics might be appropriate if you have someone who's got a concomitant exacerbation of a psychiatric disorder, but you wanna make sure you get an EKG to measure that QTC and correct electrolytes first. Just another word about the withdrawal seizures. Remember, they're self-limited. There's no rule for an actual anti-epileptic like carbamazepine, valproate. Remember, phenytoin was ineffective. If you do have someone who goes into status, that's where your benzo, phenobar, probe, that's all gonna be helpful. And you're going to want to make sure that you do further workup to look for any other causes of that patient going into status. Baclofen has theoretically been thought to be an option to treat withdrawal because it works as a GABA-B receptor agonist, but studies haven't proven any efficacy in controlling severe symptoms, so it's not recommended. All right, let's talk about the elephant in the room, otherwise known as Presidex. So Presidex, also known as and I apologize, I'm going to butcher it. I don't think anyone ever knows how to pronounce this right. Dexmedetimidine. It works like clonidine in that it's essentially acting alpha-2 agonist. As an intensivist, let me tell you something about Presidex. It gets abused. I can't tell you the number of times I've gotten calls from the floor saying that this, you know, patients in DTs and they need Presidex or this patient's uh, gotten, you know, really high CWIS scores and they need Presidex. The actual truth is that Presidex does nothing, absolutely nothing when it comes to preventing important outcomes like seizures or the development of DTs. What the studies did show is that it can be helpful with reducing hyperactivity and anxiety symptoms and it can reduce benzo requirements. But Presidex is not benign. For those of you working in the units, we've all seen it. Patients on Presidex become prone to developing bradycardia and hypotension, and that adds a whole nother set of issues to deal with. So how do we keep Presidex from getting abused? By starting these patients on longer acting benzos at the outset. And what I mean by that is that once the CWAS score is high enough to justify medication, for example, greater than eight, rather than constantly push short acting benzos like lorazepam, Let's use longer acting agents with active metabolites like chlordiazepoxide or diazepam. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Presidex isn't appropriate in some situations, but I often find that people think it's the answer to treat alcohol withdrawal, and in truth, it's really not. It can be helpful in reducing those other symptoms that they develop, like we mentioned the anxiety, the hyperactivity, but it's not going to prevent those important outcomes like the seizure or the DTs. And then one last word. If you've got a patient who's had a history of withdrawal, seizure, DTs, they're alcohol dependent, and they end up in the hospital for something else, they're not an active withdrawal, you can actually prophylactically treat them with oral chlordiazepoxide or or oxazepam if they have severe liver disease. Just something to keep in mind. All right, guys. I know that was a lot, but this is such an important topic to understand, especially the bit about Presidex. I hope it was helpful for everyone, and I've added a poll at the end of the episode, which you can access if you listen on Spotify. 
If you have a second, please answer it. I want to make sure my content is engaging for everyone. You can also access the podcast on all major platforms. And don't forget, follow me on Instagram, PoemCrit101, for other critical care topics. And I can also be reached by email at PoemCrit101 at gmail.com if you have any other questions. As always, I'm Dr. J, and I'll catch you all next time.